Hey everyone, Jules here. So we are going to start out this episode a little bit differently. To start today, I wanted to take a moment to just briefly explain the next three-part series and our thoughts about why this series is so important, especially for the season of Advent. So for the past two series, the series on American Catholic fiction and the series on Catholic blogging, they were really cultural in nature. In other words, they looked at a particular subculture and its influence in the Catholic American experience. And because of that, we were able to narrow our focus a bit and sometimes even tell individual stories, which helped illustrate a broader theme or perspective. We saw this with our episode about Eleanor Nicholson and her book, A Bloody Habit. We saw this with our feature blogger series, etc. But for this series, we are going to have to take a big step back. (laughs) and a much, much broader approach because this series is really historical in nature. We are taking a big picture glance at Catholic immigration in the United States. We'll be discussing what historians often call the four great migrations. These are periods where the number of Catholics increased exponentially from their previous size. Now you'll understand more about this as we go, but I wanted to offer a little bit of a disclaimer here because we can't cover all of the Catholic immigrant communities that have a history in our country. Again, this is mainly due to time constraints and we're following our series based on scholarly understandings of the great migrations. But I promise you for the future, I'm already planning a series on really the melting pot church, the very diverse and beautiful church, which we have here in the United States, which of course makes up Asian American Catholics, Black Catholics, and Indigenous Catholics. But for this series and really future historical series, there's ultimately this question, why are we doing this? (laughs) Why bother knowing this history? Why bother knowing the migrant patterns of our Catholic ancestors? Well, there are probably many, many answers to this question, but for me, I think it boils down to this. We must understand our history to realize that we have a history. (laughs) Unless you are a Native American or your ancestors were brought here by force. The story of the Catholic Church in America is a story of migrations. It's just a historical fact. It is and has always been an immigrant church. And so listeners, this is the story of the arrival and chain migration. So this season, we are focusing on this phrase, Catholic subculture. We've talked so far about the two Catholic subcultures, American literary subculture, and the world of the Catholic blog, because it made sense for us to start our storytelling podcast with a few series on Catholic storytellers. (laughs) But it occurred to me that to really understand our subculture story, we have to take a look at a larger story. Storytelling is really about concentric circles, right? Stories within stories within stories. And for us as American Catholics, it turns out there are many points of origin. 
So in this three-part series, we're going to go back to the beginning. We're going to ask the question, how and when did Catholics come to America? And for our guide, we're going to base our stories on what historians of American history call the four great migrations. Obviously, three episodes can't nearly do this justice, but we're going to do our best. So let's begin with the first migration, arrival in the new world. migration begins with the very founding of the colonies. And they thought Catholics would come to the United States and would not be able to practice democracy because their religion celebrated the Pope as the head of the church. This, by the way, is Dr. Maria Mazinga. I received my PhD from the Catholic University of America in 2000. I taught for two years at Virginia Commonwealth University, and then I returned to Catholic University as an adjunct instructor in history and an education archivist at the American Catholic History Research Center and University Archives. Dr. Mazinga is an archivist of early Catholic American history and in particular has an interest in early immigrant communities. According to Dr. Mazinga, the founding of the colonies, the presence of Catholics was very small. By the time that the United States was established in the um, 1770s, you've got about 25,000 total Catholics in the British colonies of a general population of about two and a half million. But here's the thing, as we've already already heard, the presence of Catholics was small because they actually weren't allowed to practice their faith. That is, of course, in every colony but Maryland. Okay, so in 1634, the Ark and the Dove, two ships, landed in the Potomac River off the coast of what we now call Maryland. And they started Maryland, and the proprietor of the colony was a Catholic, but Most of the people in the colony weren't Catholics. In 1634, the Ark and the Dove landed on the coast of Maryland with the sole purpose of setting up a colony where Catholics could worship freely without persecution. For years, they were basically left alone until Protestants in surrounding areas started moving towards Maryland's boundaries. And soon the colony was in a struggle for control. To try to temper the division, in 1649, the local government, under Catholic control, would pass the Toleration Act, which in some ways was a precursor to the principle of religious liberty. It stated that anyone who worshipped the triune God could practice their faith peacefully in Maryland. Now this, of course, only meant Catholics and other Christians, but honestly, its attempts were futile because over the next 40 years, Catholics and Protestants would be in a constant tug of war for control over the colony. And by 1692, Protestants had gained control and forbidden the practice of Catholicism. By the way, that voice you heard is Dr. Bill Portier, professor of theology at the University of Dayton. Eventually, by 1688, 
uh, Catholics were illegal in the colony. When the, when the Republic started after the Revolutionary War, only about 1% of the population of the New Republic were Catholics. Catholics dispersed throughout the colonies, setting up settlements along the East Coast and a little bit into the Midwest, and they practiced their faith illegally. Most notably was the Church of Old St. Joseph's in Philadelphia, which thanks to the Religious Liberty Charter of William Penn and a decision by the local government, the Church of Old St. Joseph's was the only church in all of the colonies where Catholics could worship publicly and freely for decades leading up to the American Revolution. Which begs the question, of course, who were these Catholics? (laughs) Who were these early Catholics who so bravely worshipped when it was illegal? Who defied law after law for a greater good? The good of religious liberty? Well, like so much of our history, the Catholic story is often shaped by heroic individuals. Margaret Brent, for example, was the first woman to appear before the court of common law, fighting on behalf of the Catholics' right to worship. This, by the way, was in the early 1600s. And for American Catholics, much of our history can be traced to the heroism of one family in particular, the Carrolls. So Charles Carroll was a wealthy landowner from Maryland. Um, he spoke out against unfair taxation by the crown, many of the things that other patriots were interested in. Um, he published articles speaking out against the crown's incursions into the colonies and illegal um, actions. He was referred to as a most flaming patriot, um, quote unquote. He attended the first Continental Congress in Philadelphia. Uh, He was a delegate to Congress two years later, and he signed the Declaration of Independence. And, of course, there's Charles's famous cousin. And John Carroll, who would later become the first Catholic bishop, traveled to Quebec with Benjamin Franklin uh, to try to talk to French Catholics in Quebec to come in on the Patriot side against the British uh, Empire. This, by the way, is Father Mark Massa. I'm Mark Massa, a Jesuit priest teaching at Boston College. I am the director of the Boise Center for Religion and American Public Life. But of course, as we've already mentioned, the heroism of these early colonists was still plagued by the reality of their situation. Catholicism was illegal. Which brings me to a point that I found pretty fascinating in my research. There has often been this narrative thread connecting all of the periods of Catholic migration to the United States. And that thread is this, persecution. (laughs) Catholics from the very beginning were met with skepticism, bigotry, and persecution. For Pete's sake, they weren't even allowed to practice their faith legally. Anti-immigration, and specifically anti-Catholicism, was one of the most prevalent mindsets of the early Anglo-Americans. So much so that even our founding fathers found reason to, at the very least, be skeptical of the faith. Take, for example, the Quebec Act, which was established a few years before the American Revolution. Now, the Quebec Act was a declaration by the British Empire, which, among many things, made the practice of Catholicism legal in the province of Quebec. Now, just a few years later, in 1774, the first Continental Congress met in Philadelphia and, among other things, addressed what they saw as the significant problems with the Quebec Act. Just listen to what John Jay had to say about Catholicism. By the way, this is my very talented husband, Ryan, reading this piece. 
nor can we suppress our astonishment that a British Parliament should ever consent to establish in that country, Quebec, a religion, Catholicism, that has deluged your island in blood and dispersed impiety, bigotry, persecution, murder, and rebellion through every part of the world. Whew, that's rough. <laughs> but here's, here's the thing. Anti-Catholic sentiment wasn't simply the law of the land or the mindset of the Founding Fathers, but it was deeply ingrained in the lives of everyday early Americans, many of whom carried anti-Catholic sentiment with them from their previous countries. But thankfully and slowly, this sentiment started to shift. As America became an independent nation, the Founding Fathers carved into the very framework of our country the concept of religious liberty. An incredibly courageous and progressive move to do at the time, by the way. Thomas Jefferson in particular was critical in this development, even fighting off Patrick Henry's attempts to make the Episcopal Church the sole and official church of the state of Virginia, <laughs> believe it or not. <laughs> And when this development of religious liberty comes, an important historical shift in the founding of our country also occurs. The conditions that those Catholics lived under in the early republic were these, this idea of religious liberty, which meant that there could be multiple forms of Christianity or other, other religious faiths, and that people were free to choose and so that created what historians of American religion call religious pluralism. And in the context of religious pluralism, people have a voluntary approach to religion. They get to choose which religion they will be. So historians of American religion talk about pluralism and voluntarism as the, the distinguishing characteristics of American religion. It was not long before the great news of religious liberty in America began to spread to other parts of the world. As people from different faiths and economic backgrounds heard that not only did America have plenty of resources and industry, but you could also travel to America and practice any faith you wanted. Pretty soon, other Europeans started making their ways to the shores. And as a result, life was about to change drastically. America, as the early settlers knew it, would never be the same again. And it all begins with a little group known as the Irish. And so you've got masses of Irish leaving um, Ireland because of the British occupation of Ireland, and they're starving to death. And um, they're heavily dependent on the potato in their diet, and the potato um, rots. The crops become diseased in the 1840s, and about a million Irish died. The rest migrate. Two million come to North America, and um, many of them came to the United States. They also went to Canada and to Latin America, and among other places. And they settled largely in places like Boston, 
um, New York and Philadelphia. Beginning just before the Civil War, Irish Catholics began migrating to the states in just massive numbers, primarily escaping the horrendous economic and physical turmoil of the potato famine. And they used all their money to get a ticket on the what was the, the British Canard Line, the first wave. And they came mostly from Liverpool. And they, the main stop for the Canard Line was Boston. And so that's why there are so many Irish in South Boston. And as, as the century went on, they landed in other East Coast ports like New York and Philadelphia. And so there, and they didn't have enough money to go anywhere else. So they, so they stayed in the urban centers. So let's talk about the Irish for a minute. Understanding a bit about where they came from and their lives before immigrating to the States is important because this early group of Irish immigrants will shape American Catholic culture for basically the rest of our history. <laughs> Today, over 33 million Americans can claim Irish ancestry. So paying attention to these early immigrants gives us a better sense of our own lives here today. Here's what Dr. Mazinga had to say about this. That the Irish were very institutional Catholics. Because the British had um, taken over Ireland and occupied Ireland um, from, you know, the 12th century forward, uh, what had happened was many um, Irish had come to align themselves with the Catholic Church as an oppositional move. Right. Of course, the native uh, religion of Ireland for many, many centuries had been Catholicism itself uh, to begin with. Then you have the the, uh, movement of some Protestants of British descent into Ireland and even some conversion, especially in the north of Ireland. But most Irish Catholics defiantly cling to their Catholicism in opposition to the British, and they cling to it very strongly. The Irish Catholics were not only drawn to the institutions of the church, but the rituals of the faith as well. The problem, of course, were that these very rituals only further separated them from their Protestant counterparts, many of whom were raised to see Catholicism with, at the very least, skepticism. Take, for example, the Protestant tent revivals of the 18th and 19th centuries. How are Catholics to respond to such an incredible public display of faith from their Protestant brethren? How were they to prove that their faith was just as significant? Well, according to Dr. Mazinga, they had the perfect response. Um, In the 19th century, there was a devotional revolution um, um, among Catholics, and one of the reasons for this had to do with Protestants would have um, these local revivals, right? And they would go to particular communities and have like a tent revival, like a minister would come and preach for several days and they would get converts, you know, um, among the unchurched or Protestants usually. What happened was in the late 19th century in the U.S., there were, you know, Catholics were there at the same time and they realized, you know, we have a form of this. It's sacrament-based, um, and uh, we also don't want the Protestants stealing our people because they have these fancy revivals, to put it honestly. So, so what they did was they had uh, different priests come and do three-day revivals. They would have, for example, Jesuits, and they would focus on a particular concept such as penance and salvation, or they would have Redemptorists, you know, or, which originated in Germany, or the polis, which was an American order, focusing on one or another aspect 
of um, the Catholic sacraments. And they would have a three-day revival, and these revivals would center on, you know, eventually everyone uh, engaging in confession or uh, to ensure their own salvation or some other aspect of the of Catholic teaching. And so these early Irish Catholics tended to be poor, surviving an incredibly dark period in Ireland's history. They tended to love the church and her rituals, including their devotional revolutions. And as a result, they were often met with skepticism and anti-Catholic sentiment, both in their native Ireland and during their arrival to the States. But thankfully, the Irish had one major component to their advantage. Though they were often forcefully separated in our American culture, this separation allowed them to invest in their own communities. The familial structure of Irish Catholics was evident from their first steps onto our soil. In other words, they almost always came to the United States with this familial structure in mind. And I think it's important here to define a term that you might come across frequently when discussing American immigration. It's a concept known as chain migration. And now if you are scratching your head wondering, huh, that phrase sounds kind of familiar. (laughs) Well, let me refresh your memory. Chain migration is one of the disasters. You allow one person in and that one person brings in 10 or 12 people. Yes, this past year for about a month or so, whenever the concept of immigration was discussed, So was this phrase, chain migration. Now a disclaimer yet again, this is not a politics podcast, not even even close, (laughs) but some listeners might be tempted to think that because we're using this phrase, chain migration, we are somehow entering into the realm of politics, but it's actually the opposite because chain migration is a historical reality. Most of us are here today because of chain migration. That's just, that's just fact. That's just the way history works. (laughs) So instead of throwing out phrases without context or meaning, let's get to the heart of what this is. Dr. Mazinga will help us with that. Chain migration is when one group of immigrants from a particular community will um, migrate to a certain city and then they'll call their family over and large chains of individuals will come from a particular city to Uh, a city in the United States, and that's known as chain migration. Here's the ironic thing. On the surface, President Trump and Dr. Mazinga's definitions don't really sound all that different. Chain migration at its most basic was the process of one family member setting up a home in America and then bringing over the rest of their family, sometimes in the dozens. And chain migration is, by the way, an informal structure of legal immigration, and it always has been. But what we're forgetting here is what chain migration did below the surface. Chain migration allowed for the family, the family, to be the foundation of our society. By allowing immigrants to bring over extended family members, they established a familial structure into the very fabric of our American life. This familial structure is what allowed not just immigrants, but America as a whole to thrive going into the 20th century. America became a place of refuge, not just for the individual, but more importantly, for the family.
Does the sea treat him kindly or trap him in storms? These hand-me-down worries, they don't keep me warm. But my hopes not dashed on the rocks and the light. Though dim not the God-breakers fashioning, they will not break me. Though come now the sea. So there you have it, listeners, the first two migrations. The first being, of course, the early settlers, the English Catholics, who again made up a pretty significantly small percentage (laughs) of the population. And the second, or by the way, at least part of the second, we'll talk about that next episode, but the Irish Catholics, the massive group of peoples, a couple million in fact, who started the wave of Europeans flooding to the U.S. shores in the 19th and into the 20th centuries. But you may be thinking something which I often thought as I talked to these scholars. Now, life was incredibly difficult for these first and second migration Catholics. I can't even begin to understand the suffering which they must have endured. But they did have two main things on their side, which enabled them at the least to slowly start to thrive. And one is that they were white. As much as we don't want to admit this very ugly part of our history and unfortunately our present, they're white, you're their European descent. And although some historical records indicate people viewed the Irish as another race, they did in fact basically look like their WASP counterparts on the surface. And the second is that they spoke English. They could navigate the American way of life and their churches, at least in part, could assimilate into the broader American culture because they had no language barrier. So all of this begs the question, what happens when, for various cultural reasons like language and skin color, it is harder to assimilate? What is the immigrant to do? Or perhaps, what is the immigrant church to do? next time on Mystery Through Manners. Many thanks to my sweet husband, as always, for putting up with me as I try to get these episodes out. I'm so grateful. By the way, if you're wondering, huh, what was that absolutely incredible song which you played? (laughs) Well, it's a song called Lighthouse Keeper's Daughter, and it's from this amazing family band called Seasons, off of their album Seasons. This band does a lot of traditional Irish music. I am just so grateful to them. They, They let me use this song, and I'm just so grateful. Please, please, visit our website for information on how to access more of their amazing music. Please tune in next week for the second part of our series on Catholic immigration. And please, pretty please, tell your friends. (laughs) It really helps to get the word out um, by just sharing with the people you know about what we're trying to do with this podcast. And if you get a chance, leave a review on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen. God bless you, and we will see you next week.